0: Welcome to Broad & Walnut. I'm your host, Michael Gorman. This is our first episode and we are thrilled to be sponsored by Krispy Kreme. Our guest today is Nick Bayer, founder and CEO of Saxby's Coffee. I thought Nick was the perfect first guest as he is truly making a difference in Philadelphia, not only in business, but in people's lives. We are really lucky he calls our city home. Also, please excuse the sound quality. This was our first episode, and I learned a valuable lesson. Recording an interview in an extremely busy open-air office space is not a good idea. We have learned from our mistake, and it will not happen again. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter. As I mentioned in the teaser episode, each week, I'll be interviewing someone who is making things happen in Philadelphia. We have a lot of great guests coming up. It's pretty exciting. Anyway, let's get to it. I hope you enjoy been an admirer of Nick's career for some time now, not only because he has grown Saxby's into a successful coffee chain, but more so because he truly wants to make a difference in this world. He wants to leverage his business for good, and this is something that is very integral to the culture at Saxby's. It's also something I definitely want to talk to you a lot about today. But Nick, before I go on, let me welcome you to Broad and Walnut.
1: Thanks, Mike. Great being here.
0: So first off, uh, let me tell the audience, we are doing this interview today at Saxby's corporate offices in Center City. You may hear the background noise. Um, There is a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of people, and it's an open-air feeling, and I must say, it is awesome. Uh, It seems like it's part cafe, part office. Yep. When did you guys move
1: here? Part party space, too, which I think is important to the the overall theme of what we're trying to do here. So we we actually moved in 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 June of 2015, so we've been here almost two years now.
0: Okay, and what was the the reasoning behind it? Because I thought you were in the suburbs before, yeah. And it couldn't have been economics that made you move to the city.
1: Certainly not. You know, <laughs> as I like to say, you know, if if we were making a decision purely on economics, we wouldn't have done exactly what we did. Um, this is a culture move for us. You know, we um, we've been blessed to be private equity backed by a Philadelphia-based, technically Radner-based private equity group um, for for the last four years, and. You know, when they had asked me and in, in getting involved in saxby's to think critically and objectively of what we wanted to do with the business there were a couple of critical things that felt like were holding us back one was in our minds we were a culture company without a defined culture so we needed to actually define our culture like what was our mission what were the core values that were going to drive that mission and then second we had to have a place where you could feel that not not only as a team member of Saxby's but as a as a community member And so for us to be able to do that and make the impact that we want to make, not just in Philadelphia, but in the region, we felt like we had to be in the city to be able to do that. And so we went on a hunt to be able to find a place that would allow us to be our sort of our corporate support center, a place where we would interview and train all team members. But would also be the place where we can leverage our facility to be additive to the community to make a social impact and so that's why i sort of added in there that it's also a great party space you know we're constant i think we have seven events just this week alone wow. for things as as um unique as we had a temple alumni event in here last night Curate big you know technology company in philly is doing a scavenger hunt that actually ends at a big party here uh tonight we've got um a bunch of different events that, that are all here to, to support the community. Wow. So that's just you giving the space over at yep, night. Yep. I'm kidding. During the day, at night, we did a Big Brothers Big Sisters event here yesterday. Um, we have a PSL, so Philly startup leader, sort of the entrepreneurial hub of Philadelphia, is having a past the gavel event. So their uh, longtime president um, sold his business and is moving to the West Coast. And so they have a new CEO taking over the business, Bob Moore. Um originally from RJ Metrics, great, great tech, uh, tech CEO, there's a past the gavel party here tomorrow night, eight to ten thirty at night. And they just want to have it in a cool, unique entrepreneurial space. And I love that our our HQ is becoming like sort of central to that. So it allows us to be really additive to the great things that are happening in Philly, and so that was all part of the plan. We wanted to move into Philadelphia. We wanted to be into a place that was in the middle of the city that was cool and inspirational. Um, and to do that, it, we we needed to have a cool space like this.
0: Yeah, it really it really is cool. How are your employees finding it? I mean, are they liking the move?
1: They love it. Look, I, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why I started my own business was, God bless my parents. My parents hate everything about their job. They don't like their commute. They don't like the industry that they're in. They don't like the boss that they work with. They don't feel like the hard work that they put in every single day for the last 30 years is making a difference in this world. And so when I decided to be an entrepreneur, it was as motivated by that as anything else. So creating a cool workspace with a culture that differentiated wasn't a cute side thing. It was the thing. you know. And to be able to have an office that I'm proud of and walk into every day and feel inspired by... I felt like if I hired a lot of other people who had a similar worldview to me, they'd feel the same way when they come to work. So when people come to work here, they're inspired and excited to come to work. And I see it because they bring their friends, they bring their parents, they bring people that matter to them. Most people don't want to share their work experience. Like most people I say in like the old days didn't want to share their work experience. There was just this like, I, there's this work me and there's this me, me. Here, the people that work for Soxbys there's just you, yeah. you know? We want you to be the person that you are when you're off the clock to be that same person when you're on the clock. And your work environment and the culture that drives that are, are synonymous. They're one and They're the same. They're interwoven. They're completely interwoven. Yeah. yeah, I know.
0: It's great. I mean, it's the, the idea that you have to get up and go to work and then you're there from nine to five. is
1: such an antiquated idea. And I God think. forbid be a different person, you yeah. know, it's right. like, there's this not work me and this work me. So like one of our, you see our six core values. One of our core values is we live with pride, passion and purpose. Most places, that, that core value would be, we work with pride, passion, and purpose. Like When you come to work, Mike, make sure that you work with pride, passion, and purpose. You don't flip the switch on pride, passion, and purpose. Like Hopefully you wake up in the morning, prideful of what you're doing, passionate about what you're going to do, and feel like you have a real purpose in what you're doing in life. Don't change that switch. Don't turn it in a different direction based on whether you're on the clock or not on the clock. Sure.
0: And, and, and... To my audience, I can attest to this, I, I just walked in here and I was greeted by an, a lively employee who was happy to see me, we never met before, he offered me a drink, went behind the counter, got me a drink, and we talked for 10 minutes, had a great conversation. Everyone, right. I, everywhere I look around, everyone is smiling, honestly, and it seems like a very productive environment.
1: And I love that for a Fun. couple reasons. One, there's no reception desk here, mm-hmm. you know, like, everyone here is a receptionist. Reception is what we call it. So we call customers guests. So guest engagement is what we sort of hold our standard to in our cafes. If that's your standard in your cafe, you should, you should treat your office no differently. Yeah. We're all team members of Saksmeets. And so whoever's closest to the entry point of our office, when a new guest, you know, any guest walks in, it's your responsibility, whether you're the CEO of the company or whether you're the newest you know, office manager of the company, it's your responsibility to greet that guest. And second, There's no sort of open calendar so people are like, oh, Mike Gorman is coming in at 11.30 today. No one knows because I want people to be on their toes. I want people to be ready and excited to jump up and greet any new guest who walks into our office. It's what we do in our cafes, and if we're a culture-driven company, then the headquarters of the business better be a complete mirror image of what we're doing in our cafes.
0: Um, Okay, so I want to dive into your business and, and learn all about what you're doing and what you've done in the past and how you got to where you are. Uh, but I, I have to admit, first off to you, I know nothing about coffee. Uh, I don't drink it. In fact, yep. I swear this is true. I've never even tried it, wow. which is odd. Uh, so the coffee business, if you could just give me a quick background on, on how it works. And I know that we're kind of getting in the weeds here a little bit. And if you could just summarize. So from sort of like bean to cup. Yeah. Like how does that process work?
1: Yep. So I'll, I'll sort of, there's there's... Two answers to that question. So I'll talk sort of on the technical side of coffee, and then talk a little bit about sort of the transition that we've sort of seen in the industry. So much of it, you you know, from the early days, like our name used to be Saxby's Coffee. Yeah. As of three weeks ago, our name is actually just Saxby's. So we actually draw coffee from our name.
0: Okay. And I mean, not because we don't
1: like coffee anymore. We don't care about coffee anymore. But we've seen a tremendous evolution in, in the industry that we're in, and, and we like to think that we're sort of ahead of the curve there. So I'll, I'll come to that in a second, but. The first side of it is, you know, coffee is a, is a fascinating business and it's, it's a global business. And so Arabica coffee, which is like pretty much anyone who competes in the coffee space right now, premium coffee, they're selling a, um, an end game product of Arabica coffee. Arabica, um, there's two types of coffee and they're, they're grown off of trees, you know, it's an agricultural product. And so there's Arabica and there's robusta. Robusta is a very fierce plant. It can grow pretty much anywhere. You could grow it in your backyard. You can grow it pretty much anywhere around the world. It's a tough plant. The byproduct, unfortunately, is not a very tasty bean. You know, right. it's, it's, a, it's a product that just doesn't have much depth to it. There's not much nuance to it. The Arabica bean is sort of what the premium coffee business has been predicated on. That is a much more fickle product. It really only likes to be grown, you know, around the equator. So the belt sort of around the equator, and that the higher the altitude, the better for it. So when you look at, you know, pretty much 200 miles around the equator, north and south, it likes to be in the mountainous regions around that area. Well, a lot of that area when you run that, that belt around the world is water. So the few places where there's actually land and it's elevated, you know, land, sure. that's where Arabica coffee likes to be grown. So it's a tough product to grow. You think of like corn in the Midwest, you're like, I need flat land with no roads and no buildings. And like, so you just run equipment across it and you harvest the corn, Arabica coffee is Okay. The great majority of it is still picked by hand. And your big coffee-growing countries are you know, Brazil and Colombia and South America, um, which are you know, mostly South and Central America is where we buy a lot of our product from. But you run it around the world, and, and East Africa is a big coffee-growing area, Indonesia. And each of those areas, based on the topography and the soil, have sort of a different nuance to the product. A lot of your stuff out of, of South and Central America is going to be yeah, the product likes to be roasted a little bit lighter. So the product is oftentimes going to be a little bit more balanced, a little bit sweeter. You get all the way around the world. Indonesia, those are very earthy products. So they like to be roasted a little bit darker. Starbucks has a lot of like Indonesian Java coffee because their roast profile is a little bit darker than a lot of you know lighter roasted coffee. And so it's really fascinating and it's, it's run entrepreneurially. You know, it, you go to these places and you have coffee farms that are one hectare farms, which are tiny, tiny little farms. And then you've got big farms, but they're not big on the U.S. farming scale. Like, they're, they're not big on that level. They're big, meaning, like, it's a family cooperative, and they might have five acres of coffee farms.
0: And you cut a deal on that level? Like, how does it work? Does yeah,
1: it work? So, so you certainly can, you know. And that, that has become popular in the last probably seven, eight, nine years, where direct, what they're called sort of direct origin, has become very popular. You know, so it's it's U.S. production companies, meaning roasters, um, whether it's wholesalers or retailers, will go to origin, will go to where the coffee is being built, and they'll cut deals directly with the farmers. Okay, there's a very humane, you know, nature to that, which which means that you're essentially guaranteeing them that they've got a consumer. Whereas a lot of these people either don't speak English or they just don't have the connections to the end consumer. America, Japan, yeah, certainly Europe, those are the desirable end games. Like that's, Those are the people that are gonna pay the most for the product. And so a lot of, especially American roasters now, have been making inroads in direct relationships with farmers because they want to guarantees the quality and supply, but there's also a humane way of doing business where you can guarantee that farmer that his and her, you know, people that are working so hard to cultivate a great product, have a a great, willing buyer on the end of it. Okay, so when you're starting Saxby's,
0: and and, and I'll get into the actual start of the company, but when you're starting, I'm gonna stay on this for a second, you decide you wanna sell coffee. Yep. How do you even begin to figure out, like, do I fly to Brazil and start talking to some coffee guys there? Like, how do you know what to do there?
1: Yeah, look, my start's a little bit different. You know, it's, um, there are certainly a lot of people that are in the coffee industry that what they eat, sleep, breathe, dream about is coffee. That was certainly not me at the, at the outset of this business. What I fell in love with was the human experience and the vibe and nature of coffee shops. That's what I liked. I'm a people person. I like being around people. You know, I, I, I like treating people. Well, I like being treated. Well, I like seeing other people treat other people. Well, I'm just a human experience kind of person. And so I fell in love with the business from that side of it. It, it, for me, it was never purely about, I just have a dream that, to make the best shade-grown Costa Rican coffee that's ever <laughs> existed. I think that side of the business is incredibly important, and I think that we do that as well as anybody. But the reality is, is that world, if you want to compete just on product, is both highly competitive, and it's easy for people to continually one-up you. It's easy for people to find the next new coffee lot, and to market you know, how unique this particular product is. What human beings like, what transcends the East Coast and the West Coast, the North, the South, being rich, being poor, being black, being white, what transcends all of that is not taste of product, it's human experience. I've never met a human being who doesn't like to be looked at in the eyes, smiled at, treated nicely. I've never met anyone like that. And so I wanted to build a business that was predicated not only on what I'm most interested in, but what I believe is the best way to be able to compete objectively. And that, that's the world of hospitality and as wide ranging of as you can get. Everybody is welcome into, into a great coffee shop. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your education level or how much money you have in your pocket. Great coffee shops are truly the greatest open door welcoming environment of any business. It's the perfect business to be hospitality focused in. So that was always my focus. That's why I got in the business. And that's what I think because we've gotten so good at that as an organization, that's why I think we're differentiating. That's why we are doing well as an organization is because we have a culture on hospitality and we've naturally gotten good at that because we have people that see the world the same way that I do. With that being said, when you're in the coffee business, for 11 years, our name was Saxby's Coffee. Yeah. So people would see the sign and say, they must have good coffee, so you better have good coffee. <laughs> you know. But what I quickly realized is I didn't know anything about coffee. I was pretty much just like you were, Mike, now when I started this business, which was I didn't drink coffee. I didn't even really go into coffee shops. Oh, wow. I was very interested in like the bar, nightclub, lounge business because like that's where I like to spend time. That's where people who were social people who like to be around other social people went to hang out. But I was afraid of the hours, you know, how black with, under the influence of alcohol. So coffee to me was sort of the wide range, open environment with great daytime hours um, that could survive in you know, urban neighborhoods and suburban neighborhoods and college campuses. Like there was such a great wide-ranging opportunity in the coffee business. And so that's what attracted me. But I, what I realized is that there are so many people that are focused on the other side of the coffee business, which is sourcing coffee, roasting coffee, and distributing coffee. And so when I chose to get in the business, my focus was finding a partner who was as committed and as good at that side of the business as I was at the human side of the business. Okay, and so that, that was the way I sort of got my crash course. I love entrepreneurship and so I love the coffee farming side of things from an entrepreneurial perspective. I'm fascinated and I love sitting down with the farmer to make our product and knowing about how long that business has been in their family generationally.
0: That's why I like, the question. Yeah, and what their
1: challenges are in raising money and how they find talent. Like, all the things, like, entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship. Whether you're a small farmer in Peru yeah. or whether you're running a Philadelphia-based, you know, hospitality company like Saxby's, entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship. So I love going down there and seeing their beautiful coffee farms and, and tasting the product that they put so much pride and passion into. But I love hearing their entrepreneurial story. You know, like, that's what I really love about.
0: I, I, the, the ironic thing of what you said about wanting to get in the bar nightclub business, I think, is that it seems to me like the coffee shop is sort of a, the new pub. It is. A lot of it absolutely but, is. Yeah, you know, yep. I mean, see people hanging out there, talking and making connections and that sort of thing, which used to be where you would go to the bar to do that.
1: I tell people this all the time: is that you know a, the significant portion of our current revenue and future revenue comes on or adjacent to college campuses. Like that, that's become a real specialty of Saxby's. On or adjacent to college campus, you know, cafes uniquely designed for that individual school or building at that school. When I was in school, which I sometimes think wasn't that long ago, but was actually a pretty long time We're the ago. The same age. I feel the same way. You could be 18 and look 15, and you could go into any bar or pub on your campus. Yeah, like that was just sort of what your social scene was. The world has changed drastically now. There's way less bars on our adjacent to campus. They've cracked down a lot of that, and so. People don't like to socialize less today than they did when we were in school. They like to socialize just as much. In fact, you could argue because people are so tech-oriented, they desperately need human experiences and coffee shops, cafes have really become that place. They've replaced pubs and have become the central place for young people on our adjacent to college campuses. And so I think that's created a huge opportunity for us and it's ironic because they didn't exist when I was in school.
0: Yeah, that human experience you talk about. It's funny, I'll go to coffee shops and I see people working on a laptop drinking a cup of coffee and it seems to me they can easily drink that cup of coffee at their apartment yep. and work on their laptop. Yep. But there is some human desire to be around other people.
1: Yep. Alone These, but together. Absolutely. So, the central reason why people go to coffee shops, whether it's a Saxby's or a Starbucks or a home or any other great coffee companies out there, the reason why people go there is to be around other human beings. <laughs> oh. It's less expensive for you to buy it in a grocery store and make it yourself. Yeah. It, it just is. But the reality is, is you're not around any other people. The reason why you want to go study or you want to have a work meeting is that you like being around other people. It's stimulating, it's inspiring to be around other people. And if you're going to a great place like us, Saxby's, it's nice to be able to start your day or to get your break in the middle of the day. Why someone who looks at you and smiles and says, is there anything else I can get you? That makes you feel so good. The bounce that puts in your step, the positivity that that sort of rushes through your body is worth it. And that's why people do that. And why people do it more this year than they did last year. They're gonna do it more next year than they did it this year. Like it's the human experience. That's the finding agent. That's the the critical central thing as to why our business is doing so well.
0: Right now you have, I think roughly 30 locations. Yep. Is that correct? Um, And you're in Philly. Uh, downtown, you're in the suburbs, you're in Washington, D.C., yep. and then you're also on multiple college campuses. Exactly, right? yep. All right, so the, you're doing something really cool and innovative, and you touched on colleges uh, earlier. It, it, you're doing an experiential, experiential I can never say that word, experiential learning program yep. on campuses, yep. um, which I just learned about. I think I, I was speaking to one of your friends about it, and it's it's a really cool idea. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing on these college campuses?
1: Yeah, I mean, so... I can talk about this forever because I, I love it so much. It is, it is such a culmination of the 10 years of what we've been working on in this business. Is and this your idea,
0: by the way? Yeah. I
1: mean, it, it was simply because like, I've been in this business. Like, I started the business, and so I've been in it for 12 years. But this idea is is a byproduct of a lot of smart people that have worked really hard in this company that have allowed us to sort of think critically about this. But there were three things that confluence of three things that sort of came together about three years ago. One was I very foolishly started this business as a franchise company at the the outside. And I say foolish because you don't deserve to franchise until you've operated whatever your business is so long and so well. You then have a model that you can then franchise to other people. I didn't do that. And so we were franchised. And and what I saw about franchising was when we had franchisees that were very committed to operating the business. like They were were the mom and pop uh, proprietor of that business. They did very well. And unfortunately, the opposite. If they were not involved, the business never did well. So I was very interested in the idea of entrepreneurs that were committed to the business. The second thing was, about three years ago, our best performing locations were on or adjacent to college campuses. So there was something special there. And and then the third thing is, I've been very committed to higher ed for a long time, because higher ed is now teaching entrepreneurship. And our great institutions of higher learning want entrepreneurs who will speak candidly about entrepreneurship and their experiences, not tell them about how great they are. We tell them about the struggles and challenges of entrepreneurship because that's the best way to be able to teach entrepreneurship. And so, our schools of higher ed, Temple and Drexel and Mile and Cornell, were teaching the classroom portion of, of entrepreneurship really well, but they were really struggling to teach what is called experiential learning. That's a higher ed term, experiential learning, learning by doing. And so, I was teaching classes at Cornell, I went and talked to a Cornell hotel dean, and I naively and ignorantly said to the dean, and Cornell has the number one hospitality program in the world, and it's called we call it the hotel school, the school of hotel administration, but we refer to it as the hospitality school. So we teach hospitality. So I went to Dean Johnson and I said, Dean, why don't we just change the name to the hospitality school instead of the hotel school? And he said, Nick, simply because we're in the business of teaching the human side of how a business operates. So what is the impact that human beings have in the success or failure of a business? So everything is through the lens of the human being, And we feel like the hotel is the perfect vehicle to be able to teach it. If you can learn all the moving parts of the hotel, you can apply that to any industry, whether it's real estate or it's development, if it's finance, it's private equity, if it's coffee shops, we can teach that through that vehicle. So driving back from from Cornell that night, we had just been backed by a private equity group that was pushing me to think critically and objectively and evaluate what we're doing well and where I wanted the business to go. And I said, the confluence of those three things exactly what Dean Johnson said about the hotel being the perfect vehicle i would argue that for 18 to 22 year olds who are desperately wanting experiential learning and to be entrepreneurial the perfect actual vehicle to teach business is the operation of a coffee shop because these are businesses that have every moving part to any other business but they're in a smaller digestible form that they're comfortable in. they're growing up in coffee shops they're comfortable in that environment and so That's where our experiential learning idea came together. It was just an idea. We now call it our experiential learning program because it's a fast growing vehicle for us. But I pitched President Fry of Drexel three years ago. This idea where I said, John, I would love to, you know, provide this opportunity for your students where your college, you know your students from the Westfall College of Art would design a cafe that would be one of a kind, and then your students would run it for full academic credit. So it would be exclusively student run. It would fly the science flag, but it would be run by Drexel entrepreneurs. And John said, Nick, I think that this is the future of higher education. We need to give our students real world experience. We would love to do it. So April 13th, 2015, Uh, Drexel provided us an amazing piece of real estate in the middle of their campus, Langster Avenue, that ends on 34th Street. We opened up an 1800 square foot cafe that's so cool because it was designed by students. The facade of the coffee bar is graffitied, all the furniture was reclaimed out of a public high school that was getting torn down, so art students went and reclaimed the furniture and repurposed it in the cafe. It is truly one of a kind, truly student designed, but every day for the past two plus years, that cafe, which operates 15 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, has been run exclusively by students. Student CEO at the top, all full PL authority, and 31 of his or her peers operate that business. Wow. Exclusively, for full academic credit. And it's been a massive success. And so, you know, we incubated that program for a year, and we wanted to start proving the diversity of the program. is big and urban and private, a co-op program. We wanted to figure out did we get lucky? Did we find the one school where this could, be, could, could really work? Or is there a bigger idea there? Sure. And so we opened at Millersville University, which is a, on a rural campus, it's a public school, it's much smaller than Jacksonville. There's no co op program, there's no standalone school for entrepreneurship. We opened that cafe January 30th of this year, and it is uh, very quickly one of the best performing locations in our entire system. And that's actually run by, again, a student CEO, full economic credit, runs all aspects of the business. And her team, Gabrielle Spiegel is the current CEO, is 42 students. It's a business where a young person, Gabrielle's 21 years old, she's responsible for a seven figure profit and loss statement, manages a team of 42 team members, and operates the coolest place on campus. So they're <laughs> donating money to sororities, and they're rent- amazing running for Relay for Life. That's her business. She's the CEO of that business, yeah. And she's getting life skills that are going to allow her to be way better, at whatever she does when she graduates college, than I was when I was at the sure. college. It's real world experience. So now that's that's our experiential learning program. I think the one thing you're touching on about real world experience, which is different than the the traditional
0: internship from years past, is. That guy that would get that that kid that would get that internship would find themselves probably sitting at a desk in a, in a cubicle in some office space, yep. and you know that guy that he's supposed to be reporting to is so busy doing his own stuff, and he maybe he talks to him once a day or twice a day, whatever. You know, it's not it's not happening. It's just he's sort of checking a box on the internship, but this is
1: this is the real deal. It's the real deal. I mean, it's and we we've, we've sort of simplified it to to three moving parts that we feel like are transferable to any business that anyone could potentially go into, whether they start their own business or they go work for another company is. In this order, team development. So, no great organization, no organization ever gets great without great team members. If you can't identify talent, train talent, and develop talent and keep them in your organization, you're never going to be able to out, outsmart your competitors. Mm-hmm. So, it's team development, it's community leadership. We operate 15, 17, 1800 square foot cafes that exist to serve their communities. So, when you've got a servant leadership mentality, where your business is run to make your community a better place, something something good is happening there. And then, third, financial management. These young people are fully responsible for the profit and loss statement. So much so that the fourth Wednesday of every month, every single one of them comes to Philadelphia. They sit in our conference room. My management team sits in the conference room and they present their profit and loss statement from the previous month. That's what all business is predicated on. Your business is predicated on that. If you're a nonprofit, your balance sheet, your financial statements are what your business is measured on from the success and failure. But we feel like that's a byproduct of team development and community leadership. If you can own and be great at those two things, your financial your financials hap, happen to look really good they, sure. they really fall into place but you get up in front of the room and you get to articulate it you get to articulate the good decisions and sometimes the decisions that didn't work that had a, a positive or adverse impact on your profit and loss statement what has been the feedback from john bryant drexel so far well john john's a visionary so he he saw the he saw the capability of this program quite out even before i did I remember April 13, 2015, like it was yesterday, that, that picture that I'm pointing at is, is from that day. So that was at 9.01 a.m. So we're standing behind the bar. Uh, that's Donna DeCarolis, the fine, founding dean of the Close School of Entrepreneurship, the largest standalone school for entrepreneurship in the country, John, myself, and a former congressman. And so we poured espresso uh, shots um, as like our way of celebrating the opening. 902, we walk on a coffee bar, John and I walk outside of the patio and the students just started pouring into that cafe as if it had been there forever. I think at that time, there was a lot of intrigue because they heard about the student-run business, but it was also really good real estate. Yeah. You know, like we know the power of good real estate, it was really good real estate. It was meant to be a coffee shop, like that's what should have been there, some sort of central binding gathering place for, for a wide range of students and so John walks out right after me as the students are just pouring in and he looks at me and said, Nick, this is the future of higher education. Your responsibility is to iron out whatever kinks come about out of this business and scale this model. He's such a visionary. Like most people I feel like would say, we have something special here. This can only be here in yeah, right. But Point. John John cares about something like this. He cares about our next generation of leaders leveraging great learning experiences in college. Because if students can get this opportunity, how much better of a city is Philly gonna be? How much better of a city is Boston gonna be? How much better of a city is, a city is Camden going to be? Yeah. Like we have young people now that have run that cafe that come out of every single different major you could possibly imagine. Nursing and engineering and marketing with that one hospitality student. We've had a young man who is an engineering student who grew up in, in Chester. First person in his family to go to college as a 20 year old undergrad, he got to run a seven figure prof, you know, profit and loss statement and manage 30 plus of his, his peers. So that's a young man that if one day he wants to move back to Chester and open up a business, he now has the tools and the experience to be able to open up a business that could potentially be a game changer for his own town. So John John was a visionary who saw the potential of this program even before I
0: did. Regarding team development, have any of his kids gone on to work
1: at Saxby's? So only one has graduated so far. Oh okay like that speaks to how young they are. Okay. Um, so the first one, Kelsey Goslin, where is Kelsey? Kelsey's in, in that picture right there. It's not good radio that I'm pointing at uh, pictures. But yeah. uh, <laughs> so Kelsey graduated in March of this year and exactly the point you're asking, where do you think she works now? Like she's here, you know, and, and look, we encourage her on her. She, she took her second to last co-op was with us and Jux will generally encourage you to take co-ops at different places just to get more rounded experience. She came to us before her third co-op and she was like, look, guys, there's some great companies I can co-op for, but how do I go from having that level of experience and responsibility to something yeah. Completely different. She's like, I need to stay here. So we created another co-op for her that was based out of our headquarters. And so now she's a full-time CEO in our business, which is just, that's a stepping stone for us. We, we require everyone in our organization to operate. You have to come to our CEO program. Other companies call that their leadership development program. We call it our CEO program. So, Kelsey is, is operating another cafe here in Center City 11 in Locus right now, which is just a stepping stone. She's got tremendous business development capabilities. She's got, she's got a marketing degree. She's someone who's going to come in and do big things for us at the HQ level. She's going to be a great servant leader because she's walked the yeah, walk. She's yeah. done what it is that we do for a living, which is we operate you know, neighborhood specific, neighborhood additive cafes with great human experiences. So hopefully this continues to be a great pipeline of talent for us. So you have Drexel,
0: Millersville, anything else? So
1: we're opening another one at Drexel this year, we're opening a Temple this year, and we're sort of at the finish line with probably another half dozen colleges and universities, mostly in this region. And unlike what I would have done when I first started Saxby's, the second John Fry looked at me April 13th of 2015, was like, Nick, there's something special here, you need to scale it. Nick, of 10 years ago, would have tried to open 100 of them the next day. But I've, I've learned from my own mistakes in this business. I knew that we had to incubate this program and we needed to sort of work through whatever kinks were gonna exist. And more importantly, build the infrastructure. So despite the fact that I, I would argue that every single college and university in this country needs a program like this, we would, we're not ready right in second to provide it for everybody. Okay. So we're constantly building the infrastructure, the culture-oriented experienced infrastructure in our business to eventually be able to bring this program to a lot of other places. And so right now we've been keeping our foot on the brakes a little bit. Because we want to be tremendous. The, the same way that we've been a great partner for Drexel, mm-hmm. that John brings trustees there, you have know, potential fundraisers go there to stop on their, on their campus tour for prospective students. I want every single college and university partner of this experiential learning program to feel as strongly as Drexel does. Drexel feels so strongly about it that they asked to open up a second one on campus. So the 33rd and Chestnut by June of this year will be a second experiential learning cafe. So we're, we're really trying to stay a little local with this right now, um, but we're really using the same footprint. So we're having a lot of conversations in the D- DC market. We're opening up the Boston market later this year. Boston and Philly are the two greatest and largest college towns in the world. So those are two great cities for us to be in with this, but I don't want to measure the success yet on how many we have. I want it to be measured on how well they are doing for their students and for the campus partners that we have. Yeah, uh, delegating
0: power is for many successful business owners the hardest thing to do. Yep. I, I have found, I mean, I've talked to a lot of guys who own really successful retail business, single location businesses. They want to scale it yep. and they just can't figure out how to do it and how to be in two places at once. They just, they're paralyzed. Yes. So for you to delegate all the power, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to a whole group of students, it's, it's really an amazing
1: thing. I, it's because I believe, I believe so much in, in the two things I've been talking so much about in this in this interview is entrepreneurs are first and foremost. When When someone is aligned with the responsibility and the opportunity that they have to lead a business, special things happen. When you take a human being and you try to make them a robot, the output is rarely good. Mm -hmm. When you give people the opportunity to be able to take responsibility and take ownership for something, if you've got people, which leads me to my second point, that are culturally aligned with your organization, beautiful things happen. So we are incredibly entrepreneurial. As an entrepreneurial organization, you've got to be comfortable with people making mistakes. That's the the heartbeat of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is about innovating and taking risks to innovate. If you take risks, you are sometimes going to make mistakes. So if you want to be entrepreneurial, you have to be comfortable with people people making mistakes. The only mistake we don't tolerate in this organization is one of not taking initiative. If you sit back and say, I wish this happened and you do nothing about it, it's the only mistake that's not tolerable here as an organization. So we're comfortable with that. And the reason why I think I have great comfort in being entrepreneurial, especially with such young people, is we do a great job of getting people that are culturally aligned. If they see the world with the mission statement to make life better and with our six core values, I trust the decision-making because their heart is in the same place of our heart. And that's why I think that we're having success with it. that our ability to grow, our ability to scale, and stay as good—if God forbid—not even get better—as we grow—is going to be predicated on our ability to be able to get talent that believes in our culture and get them comfortable being on tomorrow. Let's take a quick break right
0: there, so I can talk to you about Krispy Kreme. I think we already know that Krispy Kreme donuts are the best donuts in the world, right? The original glaze is still my favorite. My kids love the strawberry ice and the strawberry filled ones. They're huge strawberry fans. But now, for a limited time, Krispy Kreme has joined forces with Giardelli to offer the mid-chocolate donut and the Seesaw caramel donut. I was just reading the description of the Seesaw caramel donut, and it literally made my mouth water. Listen to this. The donut is filled with salted caramel filling, dipped in decadent chocolate icing, Drizzled with both the chocolate and caramel icings and topped with a blend of amber sugar, salt sprinkle, and Giardelli mini chocolate chips. Both the caramel filling and chocolate icing are made with premium Giardelli ingredients. Wow. In addition to the delicious donuts, Krispy Kreme offers great coffees, drinks, and other fantastic breakfast items. Krispy Kreme Donuts. Go get one. On my way over here, I, it, it's funny, I took note of this. I passed by a 7-Eleven, three Wawa's, two McDonald's, four Starbucks, one La Cologne, and five Dunkin' Donuts. Yep. And I didn't even mention the three Saks Beats that I yep. passed by. Uh, it seems the business that you're in is extremely competitive. Incredibly, yeah. So I guess, I guess you had already outlined this, but how you differentiate yourself from them. Is it,
1: is it all about the culture? It's, I mean, we, we are a culture company. Yeah, so every one country. of those companies sells coffee. Yeah. And, you know, the taste of coffee is an incredibly subjective thing. So much of it, you don't even drink coffee, no. you know? And what I like and what Lauren across my office likes are going to be different things. There's a lot of people that like Dunkin'. There's people that like 7-Eleven, like Lone Starbucks. There's a lot of people that make product. But the reality is the taste of product is very subjective. As I mentioned earlier, human experience is objective. Everybody likes to be treated well. And when you look at organizations, like we benchmark ourselves against a, a couple of, you know, key organizations. And, and their two books are sort of like our Bibles in the company. Not only have I read it, but everyone in my entire company has read it. You know, the, the first that was game changing for me was The New Gold Standard. This was the only book ever written with the inner cooperation of the Ritz-Carlton. The Ritz-Carlton is a, is a hospitality company, they don't see themselves as a hotel company. Their greatest asset is not their properties and their marble, it is their people. They hire people that like people, and they empower them to give memorable experiences. I followed that up with setting the table. The very, very famous restaurant tour, Dan Meyer, who you know is sort of the Steven Starr of New York City, but he's probably most known for J um, so Yeah. And so this business was. I was like, okay, wow. Ritz Carlton is, is a culture company. They struck gold, like everyone, you know, sometimes you can strike gold once, and then I read Danny's book. And Danny, I've had the fortune to meet him, like this is, yeah, a couple of us meeting him, I got to introduce him, He was a keynote speaker or something, and I always sort of his introduction. Um, his business is not about, you know, white tablecloths and, you know, um, Kobe, you know, a rarest Kobe beef. His business is about giving his guests at his restaurants, whether it's his least expensive or his most expensive memorable experiences that they yearn to come back to that place and tell their friends about it. But it's all predicated on human experience. And so it starts with, he's a big fan of the idea that the customer doesn't come first, your team members come first, what well, we call team members. He calls employees come first. And so those two books gave me a lot of courage to be like, culture is not a byproduct of product success. Product success is a byproduct of a great culture. If you define a great culture that goes out of its way to give its employees or what we call team members great working in environments, and then turn them loose to provide memorable guest experiences, you naturally sell a lot of product. So someone who's going to go to Seven Eleven is not going to Seven Eleven because they're going to get a great human experience. Mm-hmm. They're making a different decision that you just you're not going to be everything to everybody. We want to attract the people that like great human experiences that they not only want to be treated well, God forbid, they hold the door for someone when they're, when they're walking out of a cafe or God forbid they pick up a a wrapper off the floor and throw it out. We want to be the, we want to be the the coffee, the quote unquote coffee retailer of choice for those people. And Mike, I think that there's a lot more of those people than the people who are just like who sells coffee for a dollar versus a dollar 15. I'm going to go to the cheaper one. I want the people that like people and that, that value human experience. And so far, so good. That's allowing us to differentiate from just being a coffee company. So much so that we had the courage three weeks ago. It was a year in the making, but we dropped the word coffee from our name. Oh, it's Gone. We literally changed every single sign, every single cup, every single menu board. The word coffee was dropped from our name. One, it was a proclamation that we're so much more than a coffee company. But two, it's also the trend that we've seen in the business. Mm -hmm. Five years ago, 40% of our revenue came on on the sale of drip coffee, small, medium, large drip coffee. Now that, that number is about less than 15%. Now a lot of it is smoothies and kombucha and pressed juices and breakfast sandwiches. and you know the, the product line is so much more varied. A lot of that is because of the consumer that we're serving. We're serving a young demographic. College, right out of college, young urban professionals. They want more out of their coffee shop. Yeah. They want it to be more. They want to come in there at more times than just 8 to 10 when they want to drink a cup of coffee. They want it to be relevant to their afternoon. They want it to be relevant to their evening because you like people. If you're a people person, you like people throughout the day. Sure. And if you're designing great, cool neighborhood coffee shops, you want it to be relevant to them at all hours of the day.
0: You know, uh, talking about the human experience, I I think we see that playing out in the fast food world a little bit with somebody like McDonald's versus a -A. Mm Chick-fil-A. You know, you, you think that McDonald's Doing poorly has something to do with the people eating healthy and that sort of thing. But Chick-fil-A is no better as far as the food goes. But the experience at Chick-fil-A is a thousand times better than your experience at McDonald's. And that's, I think, why they lost their way.
1: I mean, you see evidence of that already. Humongous. And, and, and I've looked at that closely for a couple of reasons. One, as a kid, I worked at McDonald's. Okay. Yeah. You know, so I, I've always held them in high, in high regard. I read Ray Kroc's book from the 80s. Like I've, I've Did you always, see The Founder? I haven't actually seen it yet, yeah, but I, it. I need to. Yeah, I need to. It's, it's great. Uh, and I will eventually see it, but I, I have followed that story closely, and I'm a huge fan of the culture of Chick-fil-A. Um, that's a business that, they've sort of changed the franchising game. They have a franchise model that nobody else has, where the corporation actually uses all the money. The franchisee puts up next to no money. They're just really the proprietor. They're the owner-operator. It's a genius model. And they make sure they pick the right person. It's a culture fit every time. And it's not like, oh, Mike, where did you go to school? Did you get a 4.0? They don't care about that. Right. They care about whether you're a culture fit and whether you're going to work your butt off and run a restaurant that takes care of its people, both its, its employees as well as its guests. That's the business they're in. They're like, let us handle the product side. We'll innovate and make chicken sandwiches and chicken biscuits and yada yada but we want you to be the face of the business and be a community-oriented business. So we really have a lot of respect for Chick-fil-A. A A lot of what they've done we've tried to do in in our company because human experience never goes out of style. Yeah, It never goes out of style. It was popular 200 years ago. It was popular yesterday. It's going to be popular 200 years from now. Human experience is always great and quite honestly I think it makes your product, whatever your product is, taste better. Yeah.
0: Um, So I want to ask you a couple more questions and then we'll wrap this up. So I know you're from Chicago originally. How did you end up in Philly? Why Philly for Saxby's?
1: Yeah. So sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And I I think that that's really the the moral of this story. So I went to school in New York. I uh, went into consulting right out of school in Atlanta and I chose Atlanta because I'd never been to Atlanta. Like I wanted a new experience, you know, the company that I worked for was actually based in Chicago. I could have gone and worked for them in Chicago, my hometown, but lived in Chicago for 18 years of my life. You know, I wanted to experience things. I wanted to experience new areas, new people. And so I chose to go to Atlanta for that reason. I started Saxby's in Atlanta, and about two years into, into the operating of the business. No business plan, when I got my credit card, into my savings account. One of my first landlords um, here in Philly became my first angel investor. And when I say better to be lucky than good, he essentially said to me, he said, Look, Nick, I don't know anything about coffee, hospitality, friendship, like any of those things that you guys are doing, but I know real estate, and I know real estate is important to what you guys are doing. So I think you should move to Philly so I can help teach you real estate. I came home to my then girlfriend, now wife, and I said, What do you think about moving to Philly? And she said, Do you believe in Saxby's? I said, Incredibly. So I, Let's do it. Wow. That, that's how we wound up in Philly. And I, I literally count my lucky stars on, on multiple things. Probably nothing more than getting the opportunity to move to Philly. I love Philly. I live in Philly. I live in the neighborhood. My wife owns a business and fought off. We're educating our son in the city. I moved my office. It's two times more expensive for me to have my office right here than if I was just in the suburbs. But we're a social impact. Company in a city that needs social impact. It's the poorest big city in America. It needs employers that not just give jobs, but have cultures where those entry level jobs can become life changing careers. And that's what we are. I can make that difference in center city in Philadelphia better than I can anywhere else. So I was lucky to be able to come to, to a city like this. And I really think that we're just getting started as a company. So I just want
0: to end, we have this little segment at the end where it's your top picks. I know you're from Philadelphia, you live here in Philadelphia. Just going to run down five quick questions on Philly. Um, what's your favorite restaurant in Philly?
1: So very, very easy. And, and actually, I, I should say that's not easy for most people because this is a pretty important day based on the James Beard Awards last mm-hmm. night. Um, what a phenomenal night for Philadelphia to get so many prestigious awards. Um, it just speaks to how great that scene is here. But I'm incredibly partial to Vernick um, okay. for a few reasons. One, um, I live across the street. Um, so that's nice. Uh, two, when when Greg and Julie, the proprietors, Greg and Julie Vernick, were um, had just signed their their lease, they actually bought the building. They did all of their interviewing out of my Saxby's like five you know five storefronts away. And so we got to know each other. And I remember what it was like starting your first business. They had me come in, and like I, they have an air duct, you know an air duct system in their in their restaurant. I remember them asking me like, "Do you think it's ugly? Do you think it fits? Like, should we paint it this color?" Like they would ask me all these little things. It was so great to see. Them care so much about their business and how involved they were in the hiring and the type of person that they wanted representing their restaurant, and then to see that attention to detail and see them execute at an even higher level from day one. I mean, that, that place has been phenomenal from day one. It's a as good a culinary experience it is. Like Greg just won Chef of the Year in the Mid Atlantic, yeah. you know, which is an unbelievable <laughs> award. It's even better from a hospitality experience. They have the friendliest people that love their job and go out of their way to give you a great experience. So. I love Vernick with a capital L O V E. I love Vernick. What should we get there? So I go there all the time because yeah. like that's Maybe. my <laughs> place for you know after work drinks, it's my place for dinner. Like anyone comes to another town, I want them, want them to go in there. Um, their toasts are so popular. Like I, I could have dinners of just toast, but but their steak is it's as good a steak as there is in the city. Yeah. And unfortunately it's meant to be a steak for two. I far too often eat it as a steak for yeah. <laughs> one so hour. Uh, I think that's a good testament to, uh, to how good that actually is. What are you watching on TV right and the now? The old fashions. The old fashions are... It's, it's hard to make a great old fashion. Theirs is phenomenal. Like, Their old fashion is just phenomenal. Uh, what are you watching on TV right now? I love Billions. Uh, I think Billions is a, is a great show. I think anything that has sort of like a business backdrop to it, I love it. I think my favorite show of all time was actually Mad Men. I loved I love the business backdrop of that and I think they did a really great job of sort of timing it with with um, that era, you know, and so it was like And real the, world events. Yeah, yeah, real world events. I mean like the airline industry and how advertising works. Yeah. Like I love everything that has like a you know, a business backdrop. And I actually my sort of guilty pleasure is Empire. I okay. love Empire. Well, right. yeah, yeah, I love it. I'm a I'm a I grew up in the south side of Chicago, so I've always loved like hip hop and R and B so I think the music is just Phenomenal. I mean, the the young artist actors that they have are just such talented musicians, and they get so many world famous musicians to to write and you know, be also on the show. But it's also about like a family business, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and, like all the intricacies of trying to run a family business. So I'm I'm a business junkie, so I like anything with sort of a, a business background. But I would say those three are are the three that I'm probably quick at, quickest to put on. So is your music choice hip hop and R and B? Yeah, to, I mean, I'm. I'm Admittedly, I'm not a I'm not a huge music person. I've literally never bought a like most people have like albums of 500 and a thousand. I've never bought a digital song. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> not, no, I haven't spent. I, I don't even know how much they are. They, they're 1,000. R- nah, nah, yeah, nah. I literally have never bought one. I've never bought a single one. Not because I don't like music, but it never music's never my thing. I'm not musical. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, um, who, but pick, I, who, who picks the music in your... So we we have Sonos, which I love. Okay. Because I I like, we have a great sound system in my office. I'm usually not partial to what the music is. I just want it to be energetic. And I want people to hear it because it's about that experience for me. So like, it is the first thing that we do in the morning is we turn something on. But what it actually is minus being morose, like sad music. <laughs> I just like it to be upbeat. So um, I did, I grew up on hip hop and R&B. Chicago's a great music town, it's got a lot of blues. So I, I do naturally like that. Um, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not one for, you know, I, I can't quote a lot of songs. Like I don't like dream about or wanna go see this. My wife on the other hand loves going to live music. Yeah. And fortunately she now has a lot of friends who to be her plus one to go, nice. to go to a lot of the musical <laughs> events, so I wish I could tell you a more interesting from a musical perspective.
0: Uh, okay, so we'll wrap up here. I just—is there any new sax opening up in the area
1: that we should know about? A lot, yeah. So it's a big, big sort of balance of the year. So really high profile location for us is eighteen hundred Chestnut. Eighteen hundred Chestnut. Okay, you know, it's a six hundred twenty square foot glass box. Um, literally, uh, the, the two exterior walls are, are fully glass. We're developing a, a really. It, for us, it's going to be a really upscale cafe, but it's going to be warmed up by great human experience. So it's a really cool, sophisticated place with this custom lighting package that's going to go in there so that 24-7, 365, it's a billboard to Saxby's. You know, it shows our attention to detail. It sort of shows you know the, um, the vibrance of our business. So that's a, that's a great opportunity for us. We're doing two new experiential learning cafes, so 33rd and Chestnut at Drexel, and, and the Fox School of Business at, at Temple. Okay tremendous partnerships for us that we're beyond excited about um we are uh doing 1818 market so the beneficial building so okay. we're doing a, a small sort of interior cafe there and i'm trying to think i'm forgetting anything else in the area we're, and we're starting to open in boston so university of new hampshire we've got a couple other partnerships that are coming online there and um you know a few other deals that are sort of like sitting at the finish line
0: the Philadelphia
1: market's obviously the, the focus for us. I think by the end of this year that we're going to have about 15 or 16 locations in the, in the city of Philadelphia, everywhere from like the Sugar House Casino to University of Pennsylvania, sort of everywhere in between. So we, we really want to infill here because it gives us the great opportunity to add that many more jobs, donate that much more money, make that much more social impact. And so focusing on this market is, is really important. But we, We're going to add a, probably another seven, eight, nine locations that will open this year in um, Philadelphia are sort of out.
0: That's great. Well, you sold me not only on coffee, I would definitely try a cup of coffee, but you sold me on Saxby's. And that was a truly inspirational uh, message that you have here in your culture at Saxby's. I appreciate your time, Nick. Thank, thank you so you. much. This was awesome. Well, that'll do it for the first episode of Broad and Walnut. I want to thank Nick Bayer. He's a great guy and a great guest. And Philadelphia and Saxby's are really lucky to have him. Uh, I want to thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter. We will be back next week with another pod. Thank you.